Troubled Hands is a collection of unscripted conversations about noteworthy stories that occur around us every day. Here is your host, Nick Kroll. Troubled Hands, episode six. Ross is a friend of mine that I haven't known for a very long time, but he's been kind of in the circles of friends of mine. Uh, Ross was, you know, if I was ever to know anybody that ran with the bulls in Spain, you know, or did something just crazy and cool. That's kind of how these stories ended up developing for me. But it turns out that Ross is very down to earth and just very compassionate. Story is kind of a, a tough one. There's definitely a lot of things that he had to endure through. People that can take that type of abuse and then turn around and still be productive. It shows a lot of fight. There was a term that he used, intergenerational trauma. We've heard people say, break the cycle. Many of us, we grow up knowing one thing, and we don't know how to break away from that. We become that same thing. And to me, this is a story about how you can rise up and break that cycle. Ross, I had a great time talking to Come by anytime. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to tell that story. This is what matters most. It's probably one of my top songs, and it happens to be by them. What's the song? It's only like 30 seconds long. Crumbling Light Posts? Yeah. No shit. That's my favorite song. That song is monumental to me. And that, that's why that, I'll always... Like, or the yeah. keyboard comes in, then you just work on And then when it swells, it comes yeah. back. Really? Lost in a sea of no... That's, that's, that, that album is... Yeah. I have it on vinyl. I had to search for it pretty hard. Yeah, that that song. It's so they're great performers. Guy is just crazy. He has a, I believe his name is Paul. There's a whole bunch of stories about him. I love him. I only saw him once live, but the time that I saw them, he had like his, he's got like this glittering like robe. But just it, I'll show you pictures. No way. And he's just got he's got a voice of an angel. He walks into the room and then just. Like, they had the band warming up, and everybody's just, oh, my God, they're coming, they're coming out. Everybody's getting excited. And then he steps to the microphone, and then just, everybody just quiets their mouths. Mm. Just listen. And you could hear a pin drop. It was awesome. So wow. I'm going to get you set up with some of his, um, I'll show you some of your albums before you leave. That, that cup that you're drinking from came from, uh, I ordered a record, and they just sent it to me as, like, a thank you. Just thought it was cool, oh. but yeah, I got to meet him at a concert. I was overserved. Ended up sleeping on my cousin's floor, or kitchen floor, because I had too much to drink that whole day. So I'll probably just for the sake of proof, I'll just put that in the pictures for your podcast. Yes, um, I was a little bit thicker back in the day, but it's a good picture of my ass, just me face down <laughs> on the ground. Anyways, <laughs> all right. So welcome, Ross. Thank you for asking me to do this. Why don't you introduce yourself? So, uh, my name is Ross. I am originally from Elgin. Uh, I was born in the 80s. Uh, this is an interesting time in Elgin, but I come from a family that uh, was quite, I guess, just broken, um, for lack of better terms. I knew pretty early on that I was a little different than my family. Um, both my parents are Mexican. They came f 
not from Mexico, but their parents came from Mexico. So that would make mm-hmm. me second generation. Mm-hmm. And they were both fluent Spanish speakers. And my dad even played like mariachi and he was really immersed in the Mexican music. What would he, uh, what was the instrument? Guitar. It was phenomenal. Guitarist. And he was from Texas. My mom was born and raised in Elgin. Well, they met and, yeah, then I came along. It took 10 years to have me. My mom couldn't have kids at first. So they were trying. They were trying. And uh, during that time, she was basically caring for his kids from previous marriages. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that was a big part of uh, her life at the time until I came along. Okay. And when I was born, it was, well, I guess it was all she ever wanted, but also all she never wanted. She, okay. she didn't really realize at the time that I was who I am. So she had a vision of who her daughter was. Her little to. girl, yeah. Yeah. And then basically you just, you had a completely different path that you were going to take and she had a hard time with that. Right. Oddly enough, the entire time I was in the womb, um, the doctor was saying I was a boy. And uh, they even gave me a name. They named me after my dad's brother who was killed in a car wreck, uh, Esteban. 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 So that was my name for nine months. Well, ish. okay. And then I popped out and they were like, surprise, it's a girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they named me Rose after a sibling that had miscarried from a, one of my dad's previous marriages, but also my cousin who was killed in a car wreck, Rosie. Wow. So my name's Rosemarie, legally. Wow, okay. I still haven't changed that, just in respect of who I'm named after, mm-hmm. but I prefer to go by Ross. Mm-hmm. I knew at a young age that I was not just female. Mm-hmm. I knew as young as kindergarten that I... You were saying that you just, you felt masculine. You felt like this identity that was connected to like masculine feelings. Yeah, my understanding of gender was not, I didn't really see a big difference between boys and girls other Mm -hmm. than the physical and maybe, yeah, some cultural things like gender identities that we adhere to through social constructs. Mm -hmm. But... I just knew I was both. Okay. I knew I was a man, and, and I knew I was a woman. So that you usually say that's that's trans, right? That's considered yes. is that. And I'm not very well adversed, but I guess trans just meaning that you're um, you're not identify solely as as male. You're just kind of like gender fluid, right? And I can't speak for everyone in this experience because trans is like the LGBTQ community. Uh, it is a little cohesive, but there's a lot of discrepancies within the community, unfortunately. And even within the trans community, me not just taking testosterone and saying I'm a man, I, I get a little pushback because yeah. you almost have to choose a side. Okay. And I, I don't, I can't. Like, I am right down the middle. You're just both. following the path that you feel best in your yeah. heart. This is what I am. And so you're not necessarily going to advocate for specific types, but 
you know, you just want it to be accepted and you know, think that people should be accepted for who they are. Exactly. And this identity was really hard to form, uh, mainly because growing up, uh, my father was a pedophile. He's now dead. He's been dead since 2006. But he had a lot of issues. Um, and he was actually uh, molesting my, some of my siblings. And they came front against him when I was a toddler. And he ended up going to jail for it. But at that point in time, my mom decided that I was no longer allowed to see my siblings, so I didn't see them again until I was 20. Mm. You know, that I had no control over. As I got older, I realized he was a pedophile because obviously he, I had to, un, you know, experience a lot of that. He targeted you. Yeah, molestation and family members, which will go unnamed, and friends also had to bear the brunt of that. And it was tough. It was hard, you know, being like, okay, you know, here I am, like, figuring out my sexuality and who I am, but also having to undergo uh, sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, it's it's very tethered, but to un- unweave that web, I think, can be hard for a lot of people who have similar things that have happened in the past where, you know, um, men and women and everyone in between who may have been uh, abused and are trying to, you know, figure out what they like or what they're into. I've had people say to me that, oh, I dress like a guy because I was trying to be less attractive to men because I was abused or that the only reason I had any ambivalency about my orientation, sexual orientation, or gender identity was because of the abuse. But um, I know firmly, you know, who I am, and I knew from a young age, yeah. There were a lot of drugs in the house, too. My dad was addicted to crack and many other things, and unfortunately, I got introduced to that as a teenager, a young teen, and I started doing drugs. The drugs came in on the heels of me trying to tell my mom that I was being abused and getting uh, CPS involved and all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. basically everyone, the school counselor... Just kind of swept it under the rug? Yeah. In a nutshell, I took crack to middle school. (laughs) And looking back at this, it's I feel to this day bad about it. But I I took crack and I, I sold it to some kid. And I was just a kid myself, but I didn't really know. And looking back, I realized I probably could have killed that kid. Mm-hmm. I was just act lashing out. I, I was angry. It's I also, was, you're kind of trying to fight the presence of, I mean, everybody's parents are kind of viewed as this un, universal guide in, in child's upbringing. So if a child is, is growing, you know, mom and dad are number one in the way of the best reliable guides and here's your guide giving you drugs yeah so i uh, didn't yeah i didn't know better most people don't have the scruples to go ahead and make the call against that you were up against a pretty big tide with a broom so exactly and adults in my mind as a youth turned their back on me so i was really angsty and i just started getting 
high all the time. The cops got involved with that crack incident in middle school, but they couldn't find the actual evidence. It was all like hearsay, and my mom basically was like, "Not standing." Everyone said I was lying, and mm-hmm. I ended up just saying, "I guess I'm lying." And from that point on, I got really deep into all types of substances, from alcohol to any type of drug I could get my hands on. And most of high school was spent just wrecking my academic career, dropping out of high school. Um, by the time I was 19, I had uh, kind of hit a wall. Mm-hmm. And I went down to Mobile, Alabama to stay with an aunt. And I put myself through um, detox on my own. I stopped doing everything, even smoking cigarettes. It was intense. It was like a scene out of the basketball diaries. I was dying. But <laughs> Do you I, think that, that that process, obviously it worked for you, do you feel like it's just a lot of people sometimes just need to get themselves away from the surrounding? And that's like I did. Big, yeah. Because the home I lived in was very toxic yeah. to me. How do you get away from that when it's within your walls? Yeah, I tried. It just didn't really work for me. I would live with other people and do things, but it wasn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had to just get my shit together. So I went back to high school um, and graduated late. Mm-hmm. You went back, though. Yeah. And at this point was a turning point for me. I really wanted to break the intergenerational trauma. I I realized I didn't really, my trajectory was going in a direction I didn't want to. And it, it was just a, an epiphany. I think I was even high when I had it. And okay. I realized I could live the rest of my life like this. And I didn't want to. So okay. I went to uh, New York City. Uh, It's very cliche and it wasn't my first pick, but I'm glad I ended up there. I ended up transferring there with a tree care company that I randomly got a job with because I I thought, well, no college will look at me. I might as well do the trades. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to New York and uh, that's when I started really delving into my history and heritage. Was it just that you were independent and that you're like, now I'm on my own, so now you have control of your curiosity? Yes. It's You're less occupied by being distracted of the surrounding things that could harm you. Now you had freedom to go find your life. Yes. And so you, were draw- you, you, you weren't necessarily drawn to trees. It was more of a job of opportunity. But you did have this time now to go and do what you want to do. Well, the tree thing is kind of odd because... Through high school, when I was struggling the most, I would go to Bluff City Cemetery. Okay. Because I love cemeteries. And that one has a forest preserve in the back. And I would hike, and I would find a lot of solace and comfort in the trees. So Mm -hmm. I always had a really deep connection with trees. I just never thought it would be my career. Okay. And it ended up being, because I still am an arborist. Yeah. Um, When I went out to New York, I started thinking about my heritage heritage. yeah i was like uh why don't i speak spanish (laughs) yeah uh and wanting to unpiece and unpack my family history which i don't really know much about but i knew things got to be so broken for a reason 
And I just was curious, like, down the line, like, what, what went wrong? So you wanted to remove that interference, so no more mom and dad, but you wanted to go back and find your heritage. Yeah. And you were saying that you remember that your parents didn't want you speaking Spanish in the house? Yeah, they wanted me to be as white-sounding as possible, which did work to my benefit to some extent. But they wanted me to assimilate and... Conform. The, yeah, the only type of culture that was residual was... You know, beans and rice, tamales sometimes, uh, the music my dad made. But other than that, it was it was very much like solo ingles. Yeah. yeah. It just left it more of a mystery to you. Yes. Less, less satisfying of like, here's a piece of your culture. Instead, it was more of a, hmm, this is a little uh, nugget. It's not necessarily enough to satisfy. And I started quickly um, turning my life around in New York and gaining big success. I even started uh, my own company, which I had for a decade. Mm -hmm. I had a, a lot of success in New York. I um, opened a company, Holistic Plan Healthcare, and I had it for a decade. And that allowed me to start doing traveling. Uh, I had winters off and I started going to Mexico because I thought, well, you know, why don't I see for, for myself? Own, yourself, your own eyes. Yeah. I loved Mexico. Uh, it's not what people think mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's it's wonderful. I, I mean, I love it. But the thing in Mexico that really got me is uh, I started realizing I wasn't really accepted there. And that's uh, common for a lot of people like me who are Mexican-American and grew up here in the United, what is known as the United States. Of America and trying to go back to Mexico they just know like uh, I try to speak my broken Spanish and I had an experience which must be similar for people here who speak broken English it's that same kind of response like and I started thinking more about like what it must be like to be an immigrant in this country yeah trying to speak English yeah a little sense you had a sense of empathy, yeah like compassion for the individual that comes here it's not necessarily yeah catering to them it's hard and i've never judged people for speaking other languages on the contrary i if i could have one superpower it would be to speak every language that was ever spoken that's always been my superpower i wish i had <laughs> instead but, of invisibility or flight you would yeah language. i would because i could go around the whole world yeah and, and just speak to everybody yeah. yeah um i'd rather do that than fly it just really broke my heart because um, I had a lot of pushback and people would just switch to English. And was it a disappointment for you? You were just kind of like, ah, you wish that you could participate yeah. in the native tongue? And around this time, I ended up actually going to South Dakota. And, okay. that, and South Dakota is a reservation. It's called Pine Ridge. It's pretty famous. The Lakota live there. Um, my sister had Paula. She was doing volunteer work out there mm -hmm. and was trying to get me to go out, kept asking, asking, and I kept saying, no, no, no. At this time, I'm running a business, so leaving in the summer for a summer youth group is just unrealistic for a business owner in my industry. Yeah. Uh, but she finally convinced me to take a week, and I went out there in the summer of 2016, and um, the it was cathartic. The experience I had there changed my life forever. I um, 
was working with the youth and they were really like, I mean, they weren't having it. They were looking at me kind of like, okay, who's this person? And I was like, you kind of stuck out in their eyes. Well, in my head, I was like, I don't want to do this because I don't want to go to an area that's quote unquote underserved or impoverished and just go in for a week to feel better about myself because what can a week really do and then i'll go back to my cushy life in new york Mm -hmm. and leave them like it just doesn't sit right but i did it and you thought that that was their observation of you well like like subconsciously they were looking at you like here's another tumbleweed just coming through yeah because a lot of people do that in pine ridge they'll show up yeah they'll have a bleeding heart for a moment yeah and then they'll leave yeah okay and so that thought haunted you it did, and the way people speak of Pine Ridge haunts me. Like, I could sit here and give all these statistics about why Pine Ridge is a place that needs not Support. help, but, like... Support. Awareness. People just to be aware. Okay. That's step one. But anyone can just type in Pine Ridge, South Dakota do it on your your browser and search bar it and you'll find all kinds of statistics about the suicide rates and how men only live to be around 50 and women you know they die young um you'll read all kinds of things about alcoholism and drug addiction and and i'm not saying that stuff isn't true but i'm i guess in my head i was tired of it's like poverty porn it it's like uh people focus on that but when i went to pine ridge i saw something beautiful mm-hmm. i didn't see the dark picture that people paint of pine ridge it actually um felt like home and i didn't expect that that one week uh what you were searching for in mexico you found in pine i ended ridge. up finding it in pine ridge and when we were closing out the youth group, we circled up and we were, they were drumming and singing a traditional song. And at that point, it was pivotal. I remember it felt like my blood was remembering something I had forgotten. And I started crying and I had to do it on the DL. I was trying to be discreet because, you know, there's all these kids around and but you couldn't help it because you were overwhelmed. I couldn't by help it because in that moment, what I realized was clicking was that these kids, I could see me in them. It reminded me of that kid who was trying to tell CPS something was wrong and they were like, no, you're lying. Or that kid that was like, you know what? Fuck all these adults, they don't know what they're doing. And I don't care. Mm-hmm. I saw that look. And I remember I was just crying. It was just an overwhelming moment of emotion. Yes. And it was, did, did a lot of those, did that clarity, was it right in the moment? Or did you kind yes. of repeat it in your, in your head as you were like driving home and throughout the weeks to follow, you were thinking about that particular moment? And it was instant. It was in right then and there. It all just came crashing down. And I... I thought, holy shit, these kids, like, I I understand, like, some of the things they must be facing. Maybe not everything, but some of that pain. But You felt the connection. 
yeah. to them specifically. And they have uh, their culture. So you admire the them for that. Like yeah. You admire the fact that like, here's the, they have an understanding of their roots. Yes. Something that you wanted so deeply. Yes. But at the same time, you align with them because you could see where they were in a state of neglect, whether it be by resource or parents or guidance or whatever. And so you just, you felt the like call. This, yeah. This is, this is your call right here. This is my call. And I even had somebody from, um, from there say to me once that blood knows blood. And I didn't really know what they meant by that until I started looking into my own native roots. Mm -hmm. Because I am, I am uh, on a DNA test. I'm 60% native American. Those, t you said that those tests, they, they give a geography and it just says North America. Doesn't say like, they give a region, but you can never DNA test for tribal association. And you're saying there was over 400 recognized tribes. That are federally recognized, but there's a lot more because when we think about the government and native histories, we can't always trust like yeah. who's telling the truth. <laughs> and a lot of people got displaced with the Relocation Act. And like, I just threw myself into history, but like, not your Cl Christopher Columbus history. Like, what is the native narrative is and what what is actually the story what actually happened yeah and what is going on now mm -hmm. because a lot of people don't even know natives exist some people think they were all killed off or something believe mm -hmm. it or not um but they're very much here and all over the world and in mexico the majority of the people there are native american but they don't even identify as that anymore indio is considered a slur it just like means Indian. Mm -hmm. So the darker your skin is, the more native you look. And my skin's fairly dark. Mm -hmm. So that was even an issue in my household because um, I was pretty much the darkest in um, my extended family. How was it an issue? Did they tell you like to stay out of the sun? Like I was they tell dirty. You to... Oh, really? Yeah. So I just, they would just observe your skin and yeah. then treat you poorly. I remember my aunt scrubbing my elbows till they almost bled because they're so black. So in my head, I at an early age, I also came to believe that the darker you are... The world sees you yeah, poorly. Yeah. And, and it's like that in Mexico, too. There are fair-skinned people and darker... And I see that disparity. Like, it's, it's real. And that exists all over the world. Like, even in any any country where there's melanin that's more prevalent in mm -hmm. the body the lighter skin people you know get uh, get that white privilege i guess i don't know <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's definitely a thing after that pine ridge experience i at that point was making good money in new york my company had taken off more than I needed it to because I didn't live some lavish life. So I had a disposable income and I was trying to figure out what to do with it. And at that point, it just all f came together. And we, my sister and I started the ICAM project. Okay. And, that and this, was was the, this was the foundation that was your foundation. Yeah. So... And what, what did it... What did it do? And, and you, you personally funded it there. And then you basically used it as like a funneling resource to other. Yes. 
So why don't you go into that and explain what they what these things were? So the ICAM project um, was funneled from Holistic Plan Healthcare, um, which was your business, which was my business in New York, and we funded native-led projects on reservations, primarily Pine Ridge and uh, the Navajo Nation. So we would be fiscal sponsors. We would uh, help with programs that dealt with suicide prevention. You said there was alcohol awareness. Yeah, school, school enrollment. Literacy programs. Setting up kids in college, community gardens, permaculture. We did uh, MMIWG2S, which is just uh, an acronym for Missing, Murdered, Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Um, I've been on searches for, for people, for bodies, unfortunately. Um, housing, there's uh, like Earthship. Uh, housing's an issue on the reservation, so building sustainable housing. We did feeds for the community. Another big part of it was mini grants, like $1,000, $2,000 here for small business enterprises, single parents, students. So you were helping them qualify for these grants? Yes. I was also just doing mentorships to guide people through how to start a business or nonprofit. Um, So this this all takes off. How long of a period of time do you think it was? And then, I mean, how much time, like week to week, were you spending? I presume you mean most of the time it it was basically your winter job. So like a lot of the time when you were in New York, obviously you're working to fund. And then yeah. by the time the fall hits, you go back to Pine Ridge and you're I working. work my ass off for free. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And you're funding it from the resources that yeah. you gained. So we could probably foreshadow that I was going to inevitably burn out. I mean, I knew it was not the way I had constructed it. It wasn't sustainable. You were kind of hoping that people would dig in and follow your lead. Like, you're like, hey, come on, we can do this and get the rock rolling. And many hands make for light work. Yeah. And we tried doing grant writing, but I didn't like the way it felt circling back to, like, talking about statistics. Because I'm not Lakota. I feel the connection with the community, but I'm very clearly not Lakota. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't fill out these grants. uh, Because these kids are, they mean a lot to me. And I'm not going to use their stories to get money. For I just, leverage. That's just, I wouldn't take photos. I wouldn't put stuff on our website. There was a bit of a point of contention between my sister and I. Cause she I, wanted you to lean into it, and you were like, yeah, no, this is, yeah. this is sacred. Yeah. I just felt like I couldn't do it. And it would make me cry a lot. Because I just I hated it. Being confronted by that as a potential option you didn't want to have to stand the ground and have to stand up and say we shouldn't do this yeah it it, every part of my body it just feels wrong but what feels right and what i'm still doing today is helping other native individuals get their 501c3 and i have Mm -hmm. a lawyer in new york that helps um so that they can write the grants because they are the ones that should be. They're native, they're Lakota, they know the community the most, mm-hmm. not all these people that come in, like the churches and things that they come in, they, they what? They, they, they want the image of yeah. helping versus, you know. And then they put people on the board that are Lakota or whatever, but at the end of the day, transparency within nonprofits is really, it's a shady world. 
you don't really know where all the money goes. I did because it was... You were in control. Yeah. But some of these other organizations, I don't really know. So so let's say X money given and they really won't say where they're going. You know, like what were what was it spent on? What were the, yeah. what were the resources that that money went to? And you're kind of like, eh. Yeah. It was just given. Yeah. It was given to these people. And I know where our money went. And it went all to to helping people, to all the things that, you know, whether it was helping someone pay a light bill or anything that could help a person. But but you were saying you kind of you foreshadowed that you were you were going to eventually burn up. You, you were kind of thinking to yourself, well, I, I'm going to get to this place where I'm I put too much in. How, how long was this time? Of like, you know, how many, was it several seasons? And we can take this out if it doesn't. Um, it was like six years. It was, okay, so it was, like, it was a six-year process. By the time I got, we got into our seventh year, which was last year, mm-hmm. I was over 50 grand in debt. Okay. And I wasn't being very honest with Paula. Like, I, she didn't know how far Paul's your sister? Yeah. Because um, she was the only other one that was with you yeah. on this project. Yeah. I had used credit cards and stuff. So I was just overextending myself. Because every time someone needed something, it would be so hard to say no. Okay. I remember the last time I overextended myself was when we were searching for that woman that went missing. And we found her body. And I saw the family. And you made eye contact. And, yeah, and they were walking out to go see the body. And they were crying, and the grandma was there. And the guy that was helping me uh, lead the pro- the search, he started crying. And he's like a grown-ass man. Like, he's this big, burly, white dude. And he was smoking a cigarette, and he was crying. He's like, I can't tell them to not go. He's like, but they shouldn't. Look he was at trying the body. to advise yeah. them, hey, don't go see this. And he And then he said... I would have found her so much sooner if I had a dog. He's like, I've been trying to get this dog. Like, there's two types. I learned a lot about these dogs. So there's, like, the cadaver dogs that will find a body, and then the rescue dogs that find someone still alive, and some are trained for both. Okay. So we've had this dog, which, oddly enough, was in Illinois. But she was like, these dogs are expensive. To train a dog, it's about 9K. Oh. I, I learned a lot about different things just doing this foundation work, but... Yeah, random points come up and you just have to do your research. There was one for sale already trained, a bloodhound. And that dog, particular dog, was about seven grand. And he just needed a little bit more. And I remember just giving him, like, putting a, a thousand towards it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, Ross, why do you keep doing this? But I, I knew it was going to crash and burn. And I just said... In the moment, you couldn't... The, <laughs> yeah. The more powerful uh, problem was that you couldn't say no at that moment. But yeah. But then, you know, like, I'm going to have to be accountable for all this money later on. In bankruptcy. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then it comes. And it's here. But he got the dog. Fantastic. And I see pictures of that dog on Facebook, and I think I was a part of that. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't need recognition. Like, he doesn't. I said, just take the money. But it but, felt good. However, yes. you just you, you noticed that you had this hard time with boundaries. Yeah. When you, you had this emotion in your heart for what you wanted to do, but you didn't know how to pace what you could and couldn't do. Right. So 
and ultimately at the end of that almost seven years something ends up wrapping it up for you yeah i hit a tipping point was this right around the time that your mom ended up getting sick well i ended up getting sick before her so i was (laughs) i ended up falling into prescription pills hard time i relapsed early last year and i was uh, doing pain pills adderall xanax everything um mostly pain pain pills and eventually fentanyl which is what got me i was just taking that to get through the day because it was a lot um adderall to wake up fentanyl is a treat after work and xanax to sleep at night and it was a vicious cycle uh i was miserable i was stuck working basically for free Mm -hmm. um whether i was in pine ridge or in new york like uh just trying to keep up and then in september my mom got cancer and that's when everything really just fell apart yeah hit the wall yeah so you chose to leave new york and come back to elgin i dropped everything so your involvement in pine ridge the involvement in your organization everything and your job your career in new york and just yep i dropped everything on a dime and came back here and i've been her caregiver i was her living caregiver for about nine months because things got really bad and i'm still her caregiver Mm because she still needs help but um at that time um it was september and i was still using and i realized i started using more because of the stress mm-hmm. and how bad she was uh in no sometime around november we were walking through walmart and i remember this clearly on randall road and i was real fucked up um she was through going through chemo so she was really fucked up yeah she's very fragile yeah and we were trying to walk through walmart together and she was trying to lean on me because she couldn't stand straight but when she was leaning on me i was falling over because i couldn't even you couldn't support yourself i couldn't even support myself and she's this little mexican lady that weighs like 100 pounds now basically and i can't fucking hold her up and it just hit me that like i have to stop like this i have to stop everything mm-hmm. so i just i quit and you know just I quit, like that i quit cold turkey and i got quite sick i had to go to a detox center for a week okay um which took up which ate up like four thousand dollars of what little savings i had left because mm-hmm. i realized very quickly how hard it is to get help mm-hmm. when you don't have money yeah it's ridiculously hard and i got sober and i've been sober since i have not been using any drugs um it seems like it was a pretty hard stop though like it was oh it was a grinding halt i see that you're one of the things that's different about you versus most people is that once something is clear upon you seeing it like when you size it up this is what that is creates this definition for you and you very important for whatever acts you choose to follow a lot of people don't do that they don't have this they'll they'll see something then they kind of sweep it under the rug or they don't acknowledge it they can't acknowledge it you're not like that you just do this like all right this this is what my my moment is this is what i have to do 
So for with drugs, with how it was affecting your life and how your mom needed you, you were just like, no more. And yeah. You just went ahead and did it, and you you bit the bullet, and you ended up uh, $4,000 to this treatment, this one-week treatment. And then when you came out, did you... Did you come out like crisp and clean? You felt fine, or did... <laughs> I've always thing, wondered how that happens. Like... Don't do drugs, kids, because <laughs> uh, that was not worth it. I'm gonna tell you uh, that. So at the end of the week, process, it was just not... no. So you leave, and you're not done. Months. It's only now that I'm starting to feel like normal again. So what? What are you, when you when you leave the program, and you're saying it's, this is months ago. You're saying that you still just were struggling to get out? I mean, I could hold myself up by that point, but I was a mess. I didn't know if I'd ever go back to the sense of clarity I had prior to those pills. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I did slowly. Okay. I came back. I was cloudy. Um, I was, you know, all these withdrawal symptoms, especially the fentanyl are excruciating and long mm-hmm. so yeah wow i ended up having to get on suboxone which i'm still currently taking mm-hmm. um that's like methadone it's similar it just keeps you from getting high if you were to take an opiate because mm-hmm. uh, it has narcan in it okay um and i'm still in a program that's actually here in elgin it's great and it's free for those who don't have the finances but uh they take good care of me, and I've been accountable because mm-hmm. I have to pee in a cup. <laughs> yeah, you just make sure that you're clean. They're not wasting Ish. their time with clean. you. Well, I hate saying clean, but yeah. Post-acute withdrawal syndrome was one of the topics that Kelly talked about in the last podcast, and she was talking about how her son, you know, stopped drug use, and then he, he had this immediate depression mm-hmm. to follow, and it was just hard for him to get back on track. Did you feel present? Did you feel that? Oh God, I was a a shell of a being i didn't even i was just going through the motions and it just it was a slow slow like recovery months before i felt like myself again Hmm. what was the was the location that you were in in elgin it was the one that that you're in now that you said that you do a recovery oh greater health yeah that's on summit it's uh yeah it's in elgin fantastic and it's a great program the one thing i would uh leave the listeners with is if you know someone that's going through similar things and it's maybe it's not you yourself you just know someone and it resonates in some way this story uh honesty is one of the most important traits i think in a person for me if you move through life with an open heart and you're just honest i think that goes that's really what has paved the way for me I try to be as truthful as possible. Anyone who's struggling with adversity, who maybe life has held, kind of held, you feel like it's held you back or dealt you a hand that you don't want to play. I think the important part is to make goals, you know, however small. You don't have to shoot for the stars. Like, you always say, ah, you can be anything. No, get get that out of your head. Just set the bar. You set it. And I personally have only set the bar so I knew that I could step over it and it wouldn't just clock me in the throat. 
I wanted things that were achievable because with that, there is a sense of accomplishment and that has driven me to continue. If I can accomplish this, I can keep going. Even when you meet your aspirations face to face, like me, I got a, I finally did get a college degree. I got a, a business. I had, on paper, things seemed great. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's like a light switch and everything will be better or fixed. You must be at peace with who you are to start. Because loving and accepting yourself exactly how you are today is what matters most. Well, thank you so much for telling the story. I know it's kind of hard to go back to some of these places, but you're very open and share a lot. So I appreciate it. I'm sure that people listen. They will too. Thank you so much. Thank you.